I'm going to start the reading again. Second yeah. Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed according, concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let us pray. Grant, Almighty God, that since we cannot otherwise really profit by your word than by having all our thoughts and affections subjected to you and offered to you as a sacrifice, oh, grant that your word may pierce through everything within us so that being dead in ourselves, we may live to you and that we may patiently endure reproofs, however bitter they may be. Only let them serve as a medicine to us, by which our inward vices may be cleansed, until we may really glorify your name and be received into that celestial glory that has been purchased for us by the blood of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's sermon has particular application to pastors and to elders who are responsible for the preaching and the protection of God's word as it is preached. But it applies to all of us who are believers for it reveals what we should be looking for in a pastor, in our elders, and in a sermon how we should value with them the diligent and straight-up presentation of the Word of God in our congregation and to our families, even though we may not be ourselves the man called to authoritative public preaching and services of worship. The sermon title is, Workers Who Give It Straight. And in verse 15, a worker is one who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. The words rightly dividing literally mean to make a straight cut, like a carpenter makes a straight cut with a saw along a straight edge or upon a line which has been drawn with a straight edge. The word is orthotomeo. Ortho means straight, as in orthodontic, straightening, straightening your teeth. Tomeo means to dissect or take apart and expound. And so, these aspects of the text are cut apart so that they can be integrated back together again. And so the exact charge is one 
commentator puts it, is to impart the word of truth without deviation, straight, undiluted. And so workers who give it straight with three points, workers who preach the word straight, verses 14 through 15, workers who shun false teaching, and then third, workers who declare sovereign choice and responsibility clearly. The first point, preach the word straight, has three subpoints. In verse 14, remind hearers of the true gospel, verses don't seek approval by striving with words, but rather present yourself to God for approval. And then verse 15, rightly divide the word of truth. I have to remind you of the gospel. And in this context, we go back to what's called a faithful saying in verses 11 through 13. That's clearly what he's meaning when he says, remind them of these things. It's the gospel. We died with him, we'll live with him. We're converted. We endure, we're going to also reign with him. We persevere. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That's a Judas-like denial, a betrayal, one in which a person will not be humbled before the chastening of God ever. And verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's like the experience of Peter, who was chastened and broken as Jesus looked at him in love. Jesus was faithful to himself, and he prayed for Peter, and Peter came back. It is also a reminder of verse 8. Verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And even going back to chapter 1 and verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. That's doctrine. It's, it's different and it's not to be just equated with the, the Bible itself. It's that structure, it's that pattern of sound words, what you could call systematic theology, which is based upon and always relied upon the, the, the Holy Bible. And so these are things which I remind you because I am charged to, and I'm reminding you of the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, verse 13. It's by faith that we're saved. It's because God has loved us. He loves you today. I can't tell you that enough in this pandemic. If I get to sound like a record on that, I plead guilty. I will always tell you of God's sovereign seeking love, which is coming after you when you think you're alone, when you think you don't have anything around you. Jesus is seeking you out today in this preaching, in this service, and he is always with you. I will remind you of that. And then I will also go to the second sub-point of the first main point, which is don't seek approval by striving with words, but rather present yourself to God for approval. There's a logical connection between 14 and 15, which John Calvin points out. He points out that these people who are striving about words are doing it for themselves. It ruins their hearers, but they've got an agenda. They want to puff themselves up. They want to be the type of people who make a name for themselves. They are do, uh, they're called strivers or battlers over words, according to the Greek text. 
and these are trying to impress their audience. They're not trying to benefit their audience. And Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't have to build yourself up. You don't have to get approval by what you do. You need instead, verse 15, to present yourself approved to God. And that approval ultimately comes and is based on his grace. His grace is what receives us. We are accepted into his family. And preachers and any other leaders have to rely upon the grace of God, which is also filling their service. We don't serve profitably apart from his grace and his love. And what are they meant not to do, verse 14? Not to strive about words. Now, we got to be in, let's talk about that for a few minutes because words are very important. You may say, well, pastor, you're always talking about words. In Sunday school, we always talk about words. What, what is this talking about words? Well, I remember a couple years ago, Dr. James Boyce in a Sunday school class explained to us the different between the Greek word diakosune, which is in Romans 3.21 and 3.25. It's, it's that declaration of the righteousness of a believer because of faith, that, that his grace works and we receive it by faith. And then by way of contrast, when that was translated into Latin in the Vulgate, it was justificare, which is to make righteous, which is different. You see, we're regarded, we are accounted righteous, we are declared righteous, which is the meaning of that Greek word. But justificare is implying, and this was an error that was brought up by Erasmus in the 1500s. It's said that Erasmus uh, laid the egg and and Luther hatched it. (laughs) Erasmus pointed out, this is a bad translation. You're not supposed to look at yourself. Are you being made righteous? Have you gotten there yet? Have you achieved enough righteousness that you can get into heaven? That was an error that was implanted into the text back in the time of Jerome. And, And Erasmus was enough of an academic. He pointed it out. And Luther just, just, took his insight and ran with it. So words are important, and which words we use are important. So what is he talking about here when he's talking about um, striving about words? Well, one context is in 1 Timothy 6.4. If you keep your finger in 2 Timothy 2, just go back a couple pages, and you'll see there in 1 Timothy 6, verses 4 and 5, He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Do you see that common concept there? The disputing over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Look at two things there. First of all, it's rooted in pride. It's rooted not in explaining anything to God's people, but in showing off that you are such an academic, you are such an understanding person, that you get this and nobody else. And it's also based on money. Do you see in verse 6, he, 5, he's saying, supposing that godliness is a means of gain, because I'm so godly and I'm telling you this about these words, well, send me your money. This is what TV preachers do. This is what internet uh, personalities do to get money out of people. And this is one 
aspect of this quarreling over words. It's the attitude, but also the content. I don't know exactly which words he's talking about here. He doesn't say which words, but I'm just going to take from the context here a word that's very important as we uh, move into the next section, we'll look at more detail, verse 18. But look at that word down there in 18, saying that the resurrection is already passed. Well, resurrection means to stand up in the Hebrew language, Hebrew worldview. It's a Greek word, but it means to stand up. It's very physical. The Old Testament is a physical religion. It, it, it does not denigrate the body in the least like the Greeks did. And this whole idea of resurrection has to be maintained with its physicality, whereas these people were spiritualizing it. They were making it a something uh, that was uh, allegorical or spiritual in terms of resurrection. And so we need to really hang on and, and recognize that although words, um, words can be a, a source of truth, but man, if you cut down those words, if you try to argue away the natural meaning of a word, be very careful. If you're trying to take the natural meaning of a word, which in Greek is to stand up physically, you are in dangerous ground. And you may be doing the kind of thing here where they're striving about words and trying to explain them away from their natural meaning. So the third subpoint over under the first point is to rightly divide the word of truth. And we are meant to be not ashamed, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Kent Hughes, who is a commentator, I consulted on this, writes in his commentary about many churches which provide instead of exposition of the word, and that's what rightly dividing is, you cut it up, you expose it, by cutting it up and then you integrate it together. You show how it hangs together. Well, instead of that, some churches do de-exposition of the word. And I quote, no matter what the text from the Bible is, the preacher always is encrusting it with the same string of gospel texts so that all his sermons sound the same. As a result, the hearers suffer a kind of gospel brain death. Some Christians may have sat under the same preacher for years, but they cannot recall anything specific they learned from his sermons. There is no rigor, no engagement with the text in its context, no attempt to explain what is really said then or what the text says today. Only instead of that well-traveled bromides inviting multiple abuses of the text, unquote. Hughes quotes uh, Adams, and he gives examples of this de-exposition. He cites, first of all, the de-contexted text, Revelation 11.10, and they rejoice that dwell upon the earth and shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another. And some preachers use that to preach about Christmas. Problem is, if you look at the context, the last phrase is, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Well, Merry Christmas to you. They decontext. They lens a text. They take every Bible text and they look at it through a lens, and it's viewed through a psychological lens, or a therapeutic lens, or a political lens, a chauvinistic lens a social 
or a domestic lens so that no matter what text the preacher began with, it always ends up on the home or it ends up on the concept of wholeness or some other hobby horse of the pastor. Another way to abuse the text is to moralize it. As it says in Philippians 3.13, this one thing I do. And the preacher runs with that and he says, if you're having problem with your career, you need to learn how to focus. To set goals and then focus on them and accomplish them. So a moralistic running away from the natural meaning of the text is that this one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain toward what is head, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And sometimes the texts are silenced. They are silenced, meaning they preach the gaps. For example, in the Christmas, the, the pre, the Advent story, now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Mary felt about this, but we may be sure that she felt this and that. And therefore, we ought to thus and so. And so, therefore, the Word of God is decontexted, it's lensed, it's moralized, it's silenced. But our purpose is to give the text in its natural meaning consistent with the original author's message, but now looked at from our, perspective, from our perspective, from this side of the cross, to teach it so that the message the original author was giving his audience is the message I'm trying to give my audience from the perspective of the cross and the empty tomb. And also to share the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27, to remember that pattern of sound words and how a particular text will bring light upon God, man, salvation, and how we are to be saved unto the last day. For all of scripture, as it says in Luke 24, 27, has a relation to Christ. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Christ expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So let's hold loosely the whole idea of dividing. Myself or other pastors may divide up a text different than you would have. It may not be that they have the same points you might have put. They may choose a shorter or a longer passage of scripture to be the basis of a sermon. Let's hold these things loosely so long as the main message of the original author, inspired by the Holy Ghost, is the main message that you discern is coming across as the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart. And so we need to work at this. Pastors need to work hard. And it says here, a workman who does not need to be shamed. I just want to comment on that. You know, using an analogy from my younger years, my mother and my father. They loved me completely, and they did their best not to shame me, and I failed a lot. I had to withdraw from college in the middle of the semester. I wasted a whole semesters of tuition. I got flown across the ocean two times in a month. It, it was a ridiculous time. It was a very tough time for me, and my parents cared for me, and they loved me, but that's 
And that's a, like a little picture of God's love for us. He keeps on loving us. He prevails with us. But that doesn't mean that I didn't want to wake up the next day and make them proud. It, it doesn't mean I would... I was trying to avoid to shame them in the future. You see, we can be loved of God. We can know his grace. And yet the Bible has a richness of language that motivates us. And we've got to not be reductionist and boil down the Bible to be saying the same thing in every place. The Bible is saying here, pastors, don't be ashamed of yourself. Work hard and bring the message that God wants you to bring. So the second major point is shun false teaching, verses 16 through 18. And here we shift gears from well-meaning people, people who may be uh, preaching, but maybe not expositing the scripture and said de-expositing it. Well-meaning, true Christian people. And here in 1618, we head into heresy. So get that difference well in your mind. We're talking about shunning these people. And he's saying, shun profane and idle babblings. That's the first subpoint. The second subpoint is, less cardinal doctrines are denied, verse 18a. And three, lest the faith of some is overthrown, verse 18b. So the first subpoint of the second point is, lest babblings bubble over and spread like gangrene. Pastors are meant to warn the congregation about people like Hymenaeus and Philetus, certain teachers who teach profane and idle babblings. And if they are given a foothold in the congregation, they will multiply and bubble over and hurt many. But this warning does not mean I have to go out to these babblers myself. Other texts, sometimes it says contradict them in Titus, so it's not a hard and fast rule. But I am under, from this text, under no obligation to try to clear up everybody who has an error. In fact, I'm meant to shun them. Now, I'm not talking about members of the church or close friends of the church. If they are falling into error, I have to go out on the fields. I've got to seek after them like the lost sheep. And I have to invest in that. And the elders have to shepherd the flock. But if there is some other false teacher who's coming around Queensbury, or somebody on the internet, or somebody on email, I am meant to shun them once they are known as heretics. Having proven themselves, I will not watch their videos. I will not read that literature. And furthermore, as it says in the second letter of John, just the verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ from the previous verse, if anyone does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. I never invite Jehovah's Witnesses in. I never invite Mormons in. They are denying Christ. And I warn you, not to get entangled with people. There are other people who need your energy. There may be missionaries to Mormons and missionaries to Jehovah's Witnesses, and God bless them. If that's their primary calling, go for it. But that is not my calling as a pastor. I don't think it's the calling of most of us as believers. The second danger is less cardinal doctrines are denied. You see here that they are denying the resurrection. They are spiritualizing or Gnosticizing it. This is not the full-blown Gnosticism of the second century, but it is a pre-Gnosticism in which they're claiming that 
believers have already been resurrected. Well, how can that be? There was no Jesus coming down from heaven. We didn't all go up to him in the air. We didn't all meet him in the air, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So what are they talking about? They have a spiritual resurrection. What the apostle, what Calvin called an allegorical uh, resurrection. And this is uh, a terrible uh, tendency that still comes into the church today, a Gnosticizing. That's why it's so important someday to get back together. We are bodies. We are embodied souls. We are meant to worship together, to be assembled together. And in due season, we will do that. And I'm saying to you that there's great errors out there right now around this COVID uh, pandemic. There was a video put out there called Plandemic, and it was something, I'm not going to comment on the medicine, it was very questionable, the science was questionable, but that's not my criticism of it. That I'll leave that off the pulpit and to doctors and scientists. But my uh, observation for you is that this was produced by a man by the name of Nikki Willis, who has an organization called Elevate, which focuses on third eye awakening, collective consciousness. This is all about, you know, the new age. And this is just part one of a video series. What's part two and part three going to be about? Very likely, it could be this is the bait and switch technique. Bait me in. You speak my fears. You speak my concern about this virus and how we're frustrated over how we're isolated and all that stuff. You just draw me in. And then the switch comes with the next edition or the next edition and introduces you to horrible, false teachings, which have the power to drag people away, to lead people away. And uh, I want to just warn you that although this is a cult coming from outside and you say, well, this other stuff was in the church, right? Well, some of the stuff that's in the church is pretty cultish, especially if you're denying the resurrection and you're calling it a spiritual resurrection. This is serious stuff here in Second Timothy and it's serious whenever we spiritualize what is meant to be physical. So beware. And, uh, the danger is, verse 18, lest they overthrow the faith of some. Don't get caught up in trendy thoughts that could eventually lead you down a road you don't want to go down. And wander from God because you get sucked into new age nonsense. And so um, be discerning in your use of Facebook. Be discerning in what you read. And in that particular case, I would advise you don't read or watch anything more that comes from pandemic. That's my pastoral counsel to you. You're your own people, but that's what I, as your pastor, advise. The third point is this, that we are meant to declare the sovereign choice of God and also our responsibility clearly. Verse 19. It says here, nevertheless, the foundation of the Lord stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, I'll treat that phrase, the foundation of the Lord, next week. But I want to focus on these two quotes. The Lord knows those are, that are his, 
knows those that are his, and um, whoever names the name of Christ, let him depart from iniquity. First, the Lord knows those who are his. It's probably a memory of Numbers chapter 16, verse 5, where we have a rebellion of Korah against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Korah was saying, well, we're all holy. Why, are, why do we have to follow you? Who are you? And they were undercutting the authority of Moses and Aaron. They were ignoring the fact that the holy people of Israel were holy in the worship of God, different than the surrounding nations who worshiped pagan gods. But then there was a holiness of leadership. There were certain people set apart in the service of leadership in the kingdom of God, in the church of God at that time. And these rebels tried to pull down the holiness of Moses and Aaron, and they tried to pull down the Lord, for he had appointed them as the civil leader and as the priestly leader, respectively. And in Numbers 16.5, Moses declares, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to be near to him, to come near to him. So he, he, he knows his own. He chooses them. And later on that day, later on the next day, Korah and his families and all the associated men were swallowed up in an opening up of the earth, this judgment. In verse 32, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. But the Lord knew those that were his. And so we need to be known by the Lord to be spared. This speaks to God's sovereign choice of us, which leads us then to have a regenerated heart as he sends his spirit to believe on the Lord, leading us to honor the Lord in our life and to honor the leadership of uh, Christ church, which is meant for our protection. And we have a contrast here between judgment and mercy in Numbers and 16 and allows us in times of trial to rest in this fact. The Lord knows those who are his and he shows mercy to them based on the shed blood of Christ. Moses and Aaron were spared, even when the earth was caving in, even when things are caving in around you in this world today in 2020. The Lord knows those who are his. Moses and Aaron were protected. God will make no mistakes. Commenting on this passage in 2 Timothy, John Calvin writes, our faith will not be shaken. And if unexpected things happen, we shall not be dismayed as we often are. The church will be safe for the number with which God is satisfied remains untouched. Whenever any sudden change takes place, contrary to our expectations and hope, let us at once remember the Lord knows who are his own. How many graduations didn't happen this past weekend? Contrary to our expectation, so many weddings are going to be disrupted. So many aspects of church life together are being disrupted. Contrary to our hope, contrary to our expectation. And yet, in the middle of that, he knows his own. 
and he loves his own, and he will keep them forever and ever. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. You see, there's a reciprocal knowing. He knows us, and we know him. He knows us first, and we respond in faith, and we believe, and we trust, and we want intimacy with God. John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, having been known by the Lord, it is our responsibility to hear the second part of this verse. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. When we name the name of Christ, we are associating ourselves. We're saying, you are my hope. You are my only savior in life and in death. You are mine. I need you. And if we're naming him, then we've got to depart from iniquity. You see, repentance flows out of this confidence that we have in God, that there is help for us. There is hope for us in Jesus. And when we trust and know that there is a God who does not condemn, we gain the spiritual courage to go and sin no more. When the woman caught in adultery heard Jesus say to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Hallelujah. She is accepted and she has the means, the relationship with Christ out of which not to sin anymore. The Heidelberg puts it this way. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. Question 89, what is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Are you running away from sin in this pandemic? Are you allowing temptation just to filter into your life because you're bored or preoccupied or alone? Run away from sin. Depart from iniquity. This is the teaching of the Bible, and it is reinforced by this beautiful Reformed confession. Question 90, what is the coming to life of the new self? This is the, this is the positive part. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. Think of the good you can do. Think of the way you can serve a neighbor with a meal, with a card. Think of the good you can do in your home just by blessing your own family. Think of the good that Don does as he just gets on the phone, on the video, on the iPad with his wife and sings some beautiful barbershop songs. I think of the good that some of you are doing by making masks. Eric Pilmer told me yesterday that Wendy Pilmer has extra cloth masks. And if you need one, just call her up, email her. She asked me to let you know that. There's good you're doing in your home that's helping other people who are not in your home. You have an opportunity to bring this message by sharing this link with someone you know so they can join us next week. Or it's going to be on our Anchor podcast site again this afternoon. May God bless you as you do good. We identify with the Lord. We are those who receive forgiveness and removal of reproach. 
And so, dear flock, as I counted a serious charge from the Lord in conclusion, that he is calling me to remind you. I will always remind you of the gospel. I will remind you of the pattern of sound words. I will remind you of Jesus, the descendant of David, who is raised from the dead. And I will remind you of the love that chose you and the faith that embraces that love with hope. I will remind you and I will ask you to avoid prideful striving as I need to avoid that, not to preach words with no profit using the same old chestnuts and the same old routines that you can get into if you're, if you're using the lens theory or if you're, you're going with the old uh, agenda theory, if you're, if, you're, if you're just using some of these bromides which we talked about, the, the ways that we, we just repeat things mindlessly, moralizing the text, making everything psychology and speaking where the text is silent. I call you as ruling elders as you teach and as you watch my teaching, that we would make sure that the text that is coming across to you, the message is as best as you can understand it, what that original author inspired by the Holy Ghost meant for his original audience. And here we are on this side of the cross. And finally, I would ask you to be those who shun heretics. Do not give them the time of day. Give them none of your attention. Jesus can give you plenty of do, to do without wasting your time with a heretic. May God bless you. You are accepted freely by the grace of God. And then he looks for your abundant service with joy according to this, that you would be a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and that you would follow workers like that in your church life. May God bless you. The Lord loves you. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, bring this text to our understanding. May we serve you and follow you to the very end. And may we know that it is a faithful saying that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. O oh Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.